We continue today with the third series in our sermon on stewardship. If you recall, Joshua began this series way back last March with a sermon on the, the stewardship of our body, but then we took a pause for the pandemic. Joel brought our thoughts back to this last Sunday with the topic of the stewardship of our time. And today we continue with the stewardship of money. Next week, Andy will finish out the, sermon, the series with a sermon on the stewardship of creation. So for starters, to help us think again about stewardship, I've created a bit of a parable. Listen, please. Imagine that you are the parents of young children. And like most parents, while you love your children dearly, you would occasionally enjoy a day off to totally relax with your spouse and be refreshed in mind and body. Several of you will have no problem imagining that situation. So, now imagine that I offer to babysit your children for an entire day so you can enjoy a wonderful rare day off. I will come to your house at 7 a.m. I promise to get them up, feed them breakfast, make sure they brush their teeth, do their chores, do some homework if that's part of their life. And you can leave a checklist of other things that need to be done. I will feed them lunch with healthy food you've left and I'll have them take a nap or a rest time in the afternoon if that's what they need. And again, I'll feed them a healthy dinner. I'll have them ready for bed so that when you come home around 9 p.m., all you need to do is kiss them goodnight. Sound good? Anybody ready to sign up? <laughs> okay. So, the big day comes, and I show up as promised, and you leave me in charge. But as soon as you're out of sight, I wake up those kiddos with a promise of breakfast because I have brought them donuts. I have sprinkled donuts, filled donuts, glazed donuts, and even those over-the-top Krispy Kreme Butterfinger donuts. And I brought enough donuts that they can eat all they want. After breakfast, I announce that it's binge-watch cartoons and movies day. They can watch all the cartoons and movies they want, and I even have the latest Disney favorites and all the other great kids' movies. For lunch, the plan is ice cream sundaes. I have bananas for banana splits and cherries and berries and nuts because, after all, fruit and nuts are healthy, and I did promise to feed them healthy things. I also have strawberry ice cream because, hey, strawberries are fruit, and Rocky Road because, again, those nuts are good for us. And by the way, I will let them eat all the goopy ice cream they want while sitting on the couch or on your favorite recliner. If I have any discipline problems during the day, I brought along Reese's Pieces, M&M's, and Skittles to bribe them into behaving. And if I didn't bring their favorite kind of candy, I'll leave them home alone for just a few minutes while I run to the supermarket, because after all, what can go wrong in just a few minutes? Needless to say, no chores get done, no teeth are brushed. Dinner follows the same pattern as breakfast and lunch as they continue to eat sugary treats and binge watch movies and cartoons. And then you come home. It's 9 p.m. The kids aren't in bed yet. In fact, they're jumping on the couch. And you see little blobs of whipped cream and chocolate syrup all over the walls and the ceiling. And I have no idea how it got there, but there's even chocolate syrup in your bed. Would you ever allow me to babysit your kids again? I hope not. Because that's a picture of really bad stewardship that hopefully would never happen. In the parable of the worst babysitter ever, 
What did I do wrong? Well, I neglected to follow your instructions and do the things that you wanted for your children. I neglected to do the difficult things, like having them brush their teeth and finish their homework and do their chores. I did what was, for the moment at least, fun and easy. Good stewardship means doing what God wants us to do, even when it's difficult, even when it's not fun and easy. Now, stewardship is defined by two things. One, you are given the responsibility to take care of something, and two, it doesn't belong to you. That's the definition of stewardship. You have a responsibility to take care of something, and it doesn't belong to you. And so if you've ever babysat, or house sat, or pet sat, or borrowed a friend's car, you have been a steward. You are responsible to take care of something for a time that doesn't belong to you. So as we begin to think about the biblical principles of stewardship, we need to remember first that everything belongs to God, not to us. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. It all belongs to God. Job 41 verse 11, God Himself says, Who has given to me that I should repay Him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Also, Psalm 50 verse 10, God says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And there are many, many more verses that remind us that everything belongs to God. As Joshua proclaimed at the very beginning of this series, Romans eleven thirty six, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And so, in order to be good stewards of anything, we have to begin with this conviction. It all belongs to God. My money is not really mine. It belongs to God. My house is not really mine. It belongs to God. I'm a steward of it. My car is not really mine. My time is not really mine. It all belongs to God. Now, with that foundation, it might be possible to launch into a sermon series on stewardship of money with a long list of rules. Here are all the rules of what you need to do with your money, rules about tithing, rules about saving, rules about debt, and so on. But the problem with rules is they don't deal with the heart, they lead to legalism, and they don't fit every situation. And so, rather than rules, we need to know the underlying principles of the heart that God wants for us concerning how we handle our money. And so, today we're going to look at 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19, because Paul has laid out here for Pastor Timothy to teach to his people what are the heart attitudes that we all need to have concerning money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 17. Would you follow along there as I read? 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Four times in those three verses we saw the words rich, riches, richly, and then rich again, and then verse 19, the word treasure. It's all about riches and treasure. So that begs a question, are you rich? Well, compared to the rest of the world, you probably are. In the United States, we enjoy a standard of living that is well above much of the world. We have abundant food. In fact, somebody has pointed out that the average American garbage disposal eats better than many, many people throughout this world. We have clean drinking water. That's also a luxury in many countries. We have heated homes and glass in our windows. And I know that there are poorer people in the United States, but compared to the poor of Asia and Africa, even our poor are relatively well off. Let me give you another picture of how rich we are in this country at this time. By one recent count, there are approximately 210 nations of the world. In the United States, the average family spends more money each year eating out than the average individual income in over 150 of those 210 nations. So if you're ever tempted to say, well, I'm not rich, this scripture doesn't speak to me. I would ask you to remember that by the world's standards and by the standards of history, we are all very well off. And even if you are relatively poor, the principles still, still apply here because this text is teaching us about faithfulness with money. If God has trusted you with much, you're called to be faithful with much. If God has trusted you with relatively less, then be faithful with what you have because you are called to be a good steward of His money. Remember, it all belongs to Him. So, here in verses 17 to 19, there are four commands showing us how to be faithful stewards of God's money. They divide into two pairs of two. There are two commands addressing the perils of prosperity and then two commands addressing the responsibility of riches. So in verse 17, we start with two commands concerning the perils of prosperity. Look again at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, that's number one, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, and that's peril number two. Now, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and Ephesus at that time was a very wealthy city, the fabulous Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, brought immense wealth into the city. If you remember in Acts chapter 19, the silversmiths of Ephesus started a riot because the gospel was threatening their prosperity because they were concerned that people would no longer buy the silver idols that they made for worship at the temple of Artemis. And then also in that same chapter, some, some wealthy people came to Christ and they, they brought their books of magic and sorcery and they burned them. And Acts 19.19 19 tells us the worth of the books that was burned was 50,000 pieces of silver. This was a wealthy city and 
Some of the wealthy had come to Christ. Now, let us remember that the Bible never condemns wealth. Abraham was a very wealthy man. So was Job. And Joseph, of course, was as a boy sold as a slave to the Egyptians. He had absolutely nothing, but later on in his life, God blessed him with vast wealth. And many verses tell us to work hard, to store up for the winter, and to provide for our families. And so, wealth in itself is not wrong, but there are definitely wrong attitudes toward wealth. And the, the first one here is do not be conceited. The first peril of prosperity is to let it go to your head. In the original language, this is a a construct called a present tense negative. And when the, the present tense, the ongoing tense is used with a negative, it has the sense of stop. Stop being conceited because it's a very real danger. And that word conceited means high minded, thinking highly of yourself, being haughty. Pastor Kent Hughes calls this the seductive delusion that you are what you buy. I like that. The seductive delusion that you are what you buy. If you buy expensive clothing and jewelry, you must be a valuable person. If you drive a luxury car, you must be an important person. The seductive delusion that you are what you buy. And so if you've been blessed with any measure of prosperity, you might be tempted to think more highly of yourself and look down on people who are lower in the economic ladder. But God says, do not be conceited. Romans 12, 16 picks up this very same thought and expands on it as as it says, do not be haughty in mind. That's the same idea as conceited. But associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. You know, here the added idea is associate with the lowly. That's one of the ways to avoid being high-minded and conceited. If God has blessed you with prosperity, be sure you associate with people of more humble circumstances. Have them in your home. Do things with them. You know, as you think about your friendships, how many of them could you honestly say are from people of a lower economic status that this verse might call the lowly. See, this has been a problem for the church historically. Many years ago when William Booth started to do an outreach to the poor and the homeless in the streets of London, he tried at first to work with the established churches before he founded the Salvation Army. But the established churches had very little room for the poor. The poor in those days were forced to enter the building through a separate back door and to sit on hard benches that had no backs and no cushions in an area which was, worst of all, screened off so they could hear but they could not see or be seen. You know, let's not get too close to the poor. Let's not have to see them and look at them. What a tragedy. God says, associate with the poor. Don't be haughty or high-minded. You know, God calls us to be colorblind, whether the colors are black and white or whether the colors are green and gold. Another way to protect ourselves from the conceit of prosperity is to make sure we do humble things. What a testimony it is to Christ when a person of substantial wealth in the church does some of the dirty jobs like 
cleaning the toilets or working in the nursery and changing diapers. The first command is do not be conceited. Don't be haughty. Don't think more wisely of yourself. The second command in verse 17 is do not fix your hope on riches. If you look at the backside of a dollar bill, what does it say right across the top center? Anybody know? I know you can't see it from there, but there's one, two, three, four little words right across there. In God we trust. But you know, for so many people, there's added just one letter to that and they're thinking, it's not in God we trust, it's in gold we trust. A billboard in Dallas, Texas for a savings and loan says, we lend happiness at 18 locations. We tend to think that our bank account and our toys make for happiness and security. And superficially speaking, money can solve a lot of life's practical problems. You can drive a new car instead of a car that breaks down every fifth week if you have the money. You can go out to eat without busting the budget. You can take a vacation without robbing from the future or giving less to your church. Money can solve all kinds of practical problems, but that leads to the nearsighted temptation to trust in riches. You know, if you are relatively wealthy, it's easy to forget to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because you have your daily bread stored up for many, many days to come, like the rich man in Luke chapter 12. But when finances are tight, we have to pray all the more. We're reminded to pray all the more and to call upon the name of the Lord. And prosperity can also sometimes shield us from trials that would be good for our growth. People who are craftsmen in woodworking tell us that the finest grain wood comes from trees that grow in the harshest environment. And like those trees, we need trials for our growth and our good. And so it is a serious sin to put your trust in money. Job confesses exactly that in Job chapter 31 when he says, If I have put my confidence in gold, called gold my fine trust, called fine gold my trust, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. Hear that? Job says trusting in gold is akin to denying God above. Proverbs 11.28, he who trusts in riches will fall. And so the, the second peril of prosperity is fixing your hope on riches. Instead, verse 17 continues, fix your hope on God. And so, how do we develop a growing hope and trust in God? Well, I see two clues right there in verse 17. The first is the word uncertainty. Do not trust in the uncertainty of riches. A little one-word reminder that there is always uncertainty associated with it. Jesus Christ promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But money makes no such promise. Wealth can grow wings and fly away, as Proverbs 23, verse 5 says. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward heaven. If any of the children are drawing pictures on their children's note, there's a picture you could draw for us. 
money that has wings and flies away. Those of you that remember Job chapter 1, you remember that God can take it all away in a day. So the first clue about how to grow in our, our trust of God is to remember the uncertainty. And the second clue also in verse 17 is to remember that all good things come from God because verse 17 ends with these words, God who richly supplies us all good things to enjoy. If you are blessed with any measure of prosperity or if you have $2 to your name, where did it come from? came from God, who blessed us with all good things for us to enjoy. Enjoy them, but don't trust in them. Trust in God alone who gives them. And so, verse 17 has warned us about two perils of prosperity. Don't be conceited, and don't fix your hope on riches. Instead, fix your hope on God by remembering the uncertainty of riches and remembering that all good things come from God. So a little moment for self-examination. How's your heart when it comes to these things? In what do you trust? When trials and troubles come, is your first instinct and your first response to pray? Or is it to pay? How could I pay my way out of this and make it go away? Verse 18 continues with two more commands as it teaches the two responsibilities of riches. And so we have a classic Pauline structure here. We have the don't do this, do that. We have the put off, put on. Two negatives, two positives. Verse 18, the two responsibilities of riches. Instruct them, that's the same people he's been talking to in verse 17, the rich, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now, at first glance, you might see four commands there, but actually it's two pairs of two. Each one is repetition for emphasis. The Bible constantly reminds us to whom much is given, much is required. The greater your blessing, the greater your responsibility. So the first responsibility of riches is to do good, to be rich in good works. And this is also, just like the last verse, a present tense command, but it's a positive one, so it means keep on. Keep on. Develop the habit. Develop the pattern of life of doing good works and being rich in good works. Repetition, as I said, makes for emphasis. I'm reminded of Ephesians 2 verse 10, which says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so wealth gives one the responsibility to do even more good works and the opportunity to do more good works. And if God has blessed you in some measure financially, you have more discretionary dollars that you can use for good works. And in many cases, you have more time for good works. And when it comes time to retire, you can use that financial freedom to do even more good works in service of God's kingdom. Over the years, several years, I've known a handful of retired people who, as soon as they retired, became full-time missionaries and supporting themselves went out to the mission field. You can also use your property 
your possessions for good works. Use your home for hospitality. Provide a car for missionaries on furlough. Give a scholarship to a young Christian to attend a Christian college, somebody that might not be able to afford it otherwise. Are you rich in good works? And again, a little practical challenge. Would you pray to yourself, ask God to show you what good works He has perhaps prepared beforehand this coming week that you could walk in them? The first responsibility of riches is to do good works. The second command in verse 17, also a couplet, verse 18, also a couplet, a pair, is to be generous, to be ready to share. So again, we have this idea doubled for emphasis. With whatever financial prosperity God has given us, be generous, be ready to share. The idea that the word generous means overflowing, liberal, bountiful, reminds me of 2 Corinthians 9, 6, which says, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Proverbs 22, verse 9, He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of, the, gives some of his food to the poor. The Word of God calls us all to be generous, and if you have a greater wealth, you have a greater opportunity and a greater responsibility to be generous. Several of us are familiar or have heard of Letourneau College in Longview, Texas. This college is named for R.G. Letourneau, who was an engineer and a designer of massive earth-moving machinery. During the course of his life, he received over 200 patents for machinery that he designed for the mining industry. And today, a single Letourneau truck used in mining can carry a load as large as 200 tons. These are those trucks where you see a person standing by the wheel and they only come up to barely the middle of the wheel. Think about that, a single load of 200 tons of ore. But R.G. Letourneau, the man who designed these trucks, was also a committed Christian who loved to give. The more money that he made from his machinery and business, the more he gave. By the end of his life, he gave 90% to the ministry and kept 10% for his own living. What a great example of generosity. So again, if we have these heart attitudes, we don't need rules about how much to tithe, for example, because we will go well above and beyond what any rules right, might require. And then, then verse 19 also says, be ready to share. And that's just giving a, a slightly different emphasis on the idea here. Do you share your possessions, your tools, your toys, your abilities? For some people, it's easier to give than it is to share their things. Because if you share their, your things, the person might not take good care of them. They might break them. They might return them not clean. Share it anyway. Again, a practical challenge to think about and pray about. What do you have, even this week, that you might share in such a way that you could bless someone else? We've all heard of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is unique among all bodies of water in the world because it is completely dead. It supports no organic life whatsoever. It is sterile. 
Now, scientifically speaking, why is that? Well, it turns out that it has absolutely no outlets. A great volume of water flows into the Dead Sea, but nothing flows out of the Dead Sea. The Jordan River flows into it from the north, the Kidron comes in from the west, the Arnon comes in from the east, but absolutely nothing flows out. Many inlets plus no outlets equals a dead sea. And that, I believe, is a good metaphor for wealth. Let it flow out with generosity. Share, and you'll have life indeed. And Verse 19 concludes with a special promise for those who do these things. You will be rich in an entirely new and important way. Verse 19, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So here is even financial stewardship for the future, financial planning. If we do these things, these four commands, we're storing up treasures in heaven for all of eternal life. And this is, of course, an echo of what uh, Joshua read earlier and what Jesus said. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where's your treasure? Is it flowing out in generosity and giving and sharing? Are you storing up riches in heaven? Too much is given, much will be required. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that we have not always been generous not always shared as we should. But we confess that your word is true and right and good. <clears throat> so by your Holy Spirit working in us, cause us to be <clears throat> all the more generous in sharing. By your Holy Spirit working in us, cause us to be rich in good works and doing good. And by your Holy Spirit working in us, Tear down any conceit, any haughtiness, any high-mindedness and help us to never fix our hope upon riches which make wings and fly away. Holy Spirit, use this, use your word to cause us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. I pray it in his name. Amen.